Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. Hey, super fun to be with you guys tonight and uh, excited to be going through Matthew. You guys can open to Matthew 13. We'll be in there this evening. I don't know if you guys can believe this or not, but we are 42 weeks into Matthew. We're 10 weeks from a year. I don't know if you're doing the math on that, but we are not almost done. Uh, So we'll be there for a while, uh, but we're going to have a great time uh, together. Like Steve said, my name's Kevin. I'm from, well, I'm originally from Newberry Park and uh, moved, oh, nice. And then I moved to Camarillo, which I think is the best city in the world. So I'm glad to be there. I like Ventura also. It's a great place. Honestly, uh, we pray for you guys regularly. So excited. You guys had Terry here last week. Terry's such a good friend. Hope you guys were encouraged by Terry. Uh, And I know that's going to be a tough act to follow. But we are going to be in Matthew 13. But I want to do, I know Bert likes to do uh, a little bit of background and kind of catch up every time for those who maybe haven't been with us for a long period of time or who have missed a couple weeks or whatever it might be. So we're just going to do a brief overview of Matthew before we dive into our text tonight. And really, Matthew wants to highlight the person of Jesus as Messiah. This is a biography of Jesus' life. He wants to highlight him as Messiah. He wants to highlight him as the better Moses, as a, as a teacher and prophet. And ultimately, he is going to highlight, and as we've already seen, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not just man. He is the man God. There's five main sections that we've walked through up until uh, Matthew 13, where we're at right now. In chapters 1 through 3, we see that Matthew's connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, that he comes from the line of David, that he comes from Abraham himself. And how Jesus himself, even in his birth, is declared Messiah and is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Matthew also wants to highlight how Jesus is the new Moses. Remember, Matthew's writing into a very Jewish culture. And one of the pillars of the Jewish culture would be Moses himself. Moses was a great deliverer, right? He led his people by God's power out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And uh, you even see at the beginning a comparison that the Jews would have recognized between Jesus and Moses. And Jesus does everything a little bit better. Uh, Jesus is not in the wilderness for 40 years. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And he's led there, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's baptized in the Jordan River. He comes up. He's ultimately going to be not to deliver that just leads them out of slavery, but he's going to be one that delivers them out of sin itself. We're going to continue to see that theme played out through the rest of Matthew. But what's been established so far, just as Moses was the covenant initiator for the people of Israel. He was the mouthpiece of the covenant that was given through Moses at the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. 
Jesus now is the new authoritative covenant teacher of the new covenant which is coming in. Chapters 4 through 7, Jesus announces the arrival of God's kingdom. It's his rescue operation for the world. This is, of course, initiated through King Jesus himself. Jesus will confront evil, restore God's reign, and begins to create a new family, as he calls his disciples. In this section, uh, we see Jesus' first big block of teaching. That's a sermon on the mount where he teaches what it looks like to live in this upside-down kingdom. Then in chapters 8 through 10, Jesus brings kingdom into reality as he tells nine stories of lepers being healed, Gentile soldier, stormy seas calming, demonized people being set free, paralyzed men coming and being able to rise and walk. Gender divides can be bridged. I mean, excuse me, I missed a line. Uh, But Jesus begins to demonstrate that in the kingdom, wholeness is possible. And this is already being established before Jesus goes to the cross. That socioeconomic, racial, and gender divides can be bridged. No matter what your background, status, gender, or race, you are welcome in the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. This, of course, hasn't gone over super well, so that's met with lots of opposition. And then after Jesus teaches all those things, he sends out his 12 where he gives them full warning. Hey, just know that you are going to experience rejection and acceptance. Chapters 11, 13 go on to share and show how people are responding to Jesus. There are some who are responding affirmatively. Jesus is Messiah. He's King. He's Lord. There's other people in a neutral category where they're questioning the Messiah. This is people like John the Baptist. Even his family, potentially, are questioning a little bit. Then they have the negative. That's where rejection is coming forward, and that's primarily coming from the religious leaders. They're upset about Jesus disrupting the status quo. And that brings us to chapter 13. This is where we see the parables about the kingdom. And in many ways, these parables are commentary on on really what's happening in chapters 11 and 12 and how people are going to respond to the kingdom. But big picture, there's a couple things that I think it's really important for us to see throughout so far. And that's, who is it that seems to be responding to Jesus? It's the irreligious, the seemingly unimportant, sick, even traitors, outcasts that respond to Jesus in faith. It's the religious, well-to-do, stubborn folk who are rejecting the Messiah. Now today we're going to walk through two fairly straightforward parables. Parable of the hidden treasure and parable of the pearl of great price. Both of these build off each other but are rather potent with meaning and application. And so with that I want to dive in to our text this morning. So if you'd read with me Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us tonight Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts wherever we've come from. If it's a busy, chaotic, gnarly week, we ask, Lord, right now that your peace would fill our mind and our hearts. 
that we would settle. That we would listen to these two short parables. And that we would be open to what you have to teach to us tonight. Lord, we want to follow Romans 12.1, which talks about us presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. Lord, we present ourselves to you tonight. And we ask that you have your way with us. Lord, we pray for lots of grace as we might ask some hard questions tonight. Lord, that this whole evening would be shrouded in your love. But Father, we don't want to live in la-la land. We want to live rooted here in reality. And we need your help. And so, Father, we ask for that as we get started tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew 13, and we've seen a few different parables up until this point. We've seen the parable of the sower, which was a parable that was a reflection on in response to how people are going to respond to the message of Jesus. This parable has a present, uh, it has a present tense, uh, my mind is playing, present tense, Ness. I'm going to say ness. Uh, it has a present tenseness to it, in essence, meaning that parable was directly applicable in responding to what was happening there in that moment. The parables that followed, however, the parable of the weeds and the wheats and the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, this had a future connotation to it. This had a, not just a right now, but hey, when the end of the age comes, this is what will be. And so Jesus, he's been telling these parables, he's kind of jumping into the present, and then he's t- jumping into like a, a present with primarily future. And now back here in this parable, Jesus is jumping into the present. Here, the parable of the hidden treasure and pearl of great price, they're highlighting the present value of the kingdom of God. This first parable about the treasure, the hidden treasure, is rather straightforward. There is a treasure hidden in the ground. Once again, it's important for us to realize that Jesus, when he's speaking in parables, he's not speaking in code. A lot of times we can think when we hear somebody talk about parables, we genuinely or generally start to think about Jesus speaking in mystery. Now, I want to clarify something here because Jesus, as he's teaching in parables, this is about as common as he can get in communicating with the people. He is speaking very easily to understand stories. What's hidden is potentially the meaning. Parables themselves are an invitation to chew on, to think critically, and to listen and respond. As Jesus is teaching in parables, it's important that we understand that each time he teaches in parables, he's at the same time inviting people to respond, either to decide to follow him or to reject him. And so in this parable, he is speaking very commonly. He's talking about how this guy hid or there was this hidden treasure in the ground. Back then, it's very common. You see, there was no chase. There was no B of A. There was no safety deposit box. There wasn't even a mattress in which you could stuff cash in. If people wanted to hide treasure... They put it in a pot, and they buried it underground, period. I don't know about you guys, but I forget things regularly. 
It's like the most maddening thing if I'm trying to leave and I can't find my key somewhere. It drives me nuts. I couldn't imagine burying a treasure and having to remember where it was. And so it actually was a relatively common practice for people to forget where they had buried their treasures. In fact, I, I have a tendency, to, as I was uh, getting ready for this, I just instantly, I don't know if you guys have watched the show Storage Wars, but I think if reality TV existed back then, there'd be like a Field Wars reality show about people who went around buying abandoned property or where people were dying, and, and they would just go and try and search for the hidden treasure that was in the field. This was that common of a practice. So this guy who finds the treasure, he's most likely a commoner. He doesn't own the land. He's most likely working the field. He has a boss. And it's interesting here, it highlights that he's not even specifically looking for the treasure. He happens upon it and he finds it accidentally. But it's interesting, instantly he knows that it's valuable. Have you guys ever happened upon a treasure before? It's pretty awesome, right? Like, I know this is a small deal, but if I put like a fresh pair of jeans on after the dryer and like I reach in and I got like a $5 bill that's crumped up in there, that's a good day. I'm pumped. I'm pumped if you're really lucky you got a $20 bill in there. But there's other things that are, that are these things that we stumble upon, that we happen upon, and we get really, really excited. It's interesting how certain treasures that we can fall, stumble upon or happen upon can get us excited and change our perspective on life. My kids get really excited about things like this. My son has a, he goes to like, they have, instead of doing normal fundraisers, they do like fairs where they trick you into giving their school a bunch of money. Um, and your kids like throw tantrums if you don't let them play games. And, but all of these games, they have these, these little like rewards as you play them. These treasures, if you will. But all of them are cheap pieces of garbage, more or less. <laughs> At my son's school, they have this game, and it's kind of, it's a little bit, it seems a little bit crude, and maybe it is a little bit crude, but they have this game. I don't know if anybody has seen it. It's, it's called a chicken poop game. Just hang with me. What they do is they put like a parachute down on the ground. They have this tent that goes over it, and there is like pies uh, and each of them have a number. And the kids go and they grab, they pay like two tickets and they're able to get like three different numbers. And th what they're doing is they're hoping that the chicken poops on their number. Uh, and if they do, they get that treasure. <laughs> not the, not, they get a prize, which is in my kid's mind, a treasure. But what's really interesting is let's say when that chicken does that and, and, and they go and they receive their prize, that thing makes them so excited. And it's like this janky yo-yo that never comes back up. And, and yet they get so mad and they get so frustrated. And, and it, but here's this treasure that makes them so excited, that makes them so mad. And in the big grand scheme of things, it's worthless. It's just a bunch of junk. But here, this thing that this man happens upon, it's not a bunch of junk. Interestingly, this guy knows right away that this treasure is of immeasurable value, immeasurable worth. 
It is kind of curious. I, if, if this was me and I was finding this treasure and I found it, I probably would just take it and run away with it. I would just pick it up out of the ground and I would take it and run away. Again, context matters here uh, because what this guy does is actually kind of weird. He takes it and he buries it back down in the ground again. We might wonder why would he actually do something like that? And again, the context that Jesus is writing into, you see, if that man took that, that treasure actually wouldn't belong to him. It rightfully would belong to his boss or to the owner of that field. So instead, what he does is he buries it back down and he knows the value of this treasure that he goes and he, in his joy, sells everything he has so that he can purchase this land. I don't even know how that is possible for this guy because the picture that is painted is that he's not a person of status. He's not a person that has much. And yet everything that he has, he's willing to sell. To take hold of this treasure. And what is this treasure? It's the kingdom of God. All the way throughout Matthew, Jesus has been declaring the good news of the kingdom. This good news, or in Greek, euangelion, is always used to declare something unique. It's not just good news like, hey, I got a raise, or hey, good news, like I found five bucks in my pocket. It's always used throughout the New Testament in declaring that not only is there good news uh, in general, but there's specifically good news that a new king is coming, and a new kingdom is being established. You don't declare a new kingdom without a king. And so in the context, as we're talking about the kingdom of God, we have to understand that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is always connected to the king himself. You remember, this might be a helpful tool for you. You can't have the kingdom without the king, right? And if you don't, if you take the king out of kingdom, it's just dumb, right? Okay, there's a pun for you. That's just for Scott. Just for Scott. Without question, the overwhelming significance of this parable is not how the worker found the treasure. It's what he did once he found it. He sacrificed, sold all that he had so that he could buy this field and grab hold of, become possessor of the kingdom. Did he earn his salvation? No. That is not what we're talking about today. But did he have a responsibility or a role to play once he found or once he happened upon the treasure? The answer is absolutely. This is part of the tension that Jesus has put before his disciples and before us. Following Jesus is not an add-on to our life. It is our life. Jesus has a responsibility to call, lead, and release and disciples have a responsibility to drop their nets and follow Jesus. To learn from him, to be changed by him, and to begin to do what he did. Michael Wilkins a commentary, uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, and he says this, No sacrifice is too great to live in God's will and experience a discipleship relationship with Jesus as master. This is living in the kingdom. So the sacrifice that this guy makes is amazing. It's huge. It's a big deal. But you know the thing that probably blows me away more than any of it? 
It's his attitude as he's going. In joy, he gives up everything so that he could become a possessor of the kingdom. This treasure to him was so valuable that he was willing to part with absolutely everything. And not just so he could have the benefits of the kingdom, but so that he could have the king himself. This man seemed to grasp that there was nothing that can compare. There's nothing that could compare to being in relationship with the king, to being part of an imperishable family, to finding purpose in life, to finding meaning and understanding, to begin to do what you're actually created to do. See, all of life's major questions, they find their answer under the king in his kingdom. This point is so important to Jesus that he continues to tell another parable that basically says almost the same thing with a few slight differences. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, with the phrase, again, the kingdom of heaven is like, this directly connects the parable of the great pearl, the pearl of great price with the hidden treasure. But he's not saying the same exact thing. The main point is going to be very similar, but there are a few differences here that I think are good for us to grab onto. See, the main difference between these two parables is this. Uh, one is in the stature of the man. The man in the first parable seems to be a nobody, seems to be rather insignificant, potentially poor, potentially an outcast. The man in the second parable, however, is different than that. He's a pearl merchant, which I think is a thing. Uh, it doesn't make, it's, you know, he's a, I think as I read in a commentary, he's a pearl wholesaler. Um, that's neat. Uh, I think that's cool. But what's cool for me to notice here is that this man is apparently very wealthy. He is a man of status. He is a man with plenty. And here we see Jesus highlighting this man as one who is desperately searching for the pearl of great price. He is desperately searching for this treasure. And I think what's interesting here is we have both sides of the spectrum. We have those who seemingly accidentally find the greatest treasure on earth and who have almost nothing and then they have everything as soon as they grab hold of the kingdom. And then you have the one who seems to have much and he's in pursuit of the kingdom. And when he finds the pearl of great price, he, just like the man who seemed to have nothing, he gets rid of everything. He sells all that he has and seemingly has nothing except for the fact that he has the pearl of great price. He has the treasure and in that he now has everything. See, Jesus is identifying the kingdom as being precious and valuable, just like he did with the hidden treasure. Once again, Jesus in no way, shape, or form is communicating that you can buy your way into the kingdom. 
Jesus is highlighting the value of the kingdom and proper response when we find the thing of greatest value in this world. And that's the king and the kingdom. Both of these men, when they encountered the king and the kingdom, they could not live like they had before. It wasn't an option for them. They knew that if they were to join, if they were to behold, if they were to have the king and the kingdom, it meant that everything would change. Everything would be reoriented. We could not live as they once did. They could not carry on the same way as they did before. Life changes completely. Why? Because we sit under a new king and are a part of a new kingdom. In coming to Jesus, we say no to the cares and pleasures of this world, and we say yes to the kingship, apprenticeship, and discipleship to Jesus. This is where we declare, like some do similarly at a wedding, that I will adore Jesus above all other people all other things and all other dreams. Jesus himself isn't the only one that talks about the kingdom like this. Paul says this in Philippians 3. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, my King. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Everything Paul had gathered, everything Paul had earned on his own right and his own merit, he considers it rubbish in comparison to gaining Christ. There is nothing that compares to it. Similar to what Jesus is highlighting in these parables. Remember when we said with the parables, Jesus is using these as actually as decisive moments for those who are listening. There are opportunities for people to say yes to Jesus and his kingdom. One of the clear points in these parables is, is that if you are to possess the kingdom of God, it requires a complete willingness to abandon the ways in which we once walked and now walk in allegiance to the one who gave it all. In these parables... We should hear Jesus' invitation into discipleship to come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Come, abandon the things that bring death. Be changed by me, learn from me, and begin to do what I did. For us tonight, there's some questions that I want to ask. See, in these parables, it is clear that with each of these guys, the kingdom of God, the king and the kingdom are of paramount value to them. And one of the questions I want us to be willing to step into tonight is, is the kingdom of God and Jesus our king your most valued treasure?
Is He, is the kingdom the best thing about you? Is He, is the kingdom the best part of your day? Is He and His kingdom the best part of your future? And is He and His kingdom the best part that redeems your past? I think it's important that we step into these questions. Because I think the reality is we live in a world that pushes us to love all things. And as we begin to love or treasure all things, what happens intentionally or not is genuinely our love or our treasuring of Jesus and his kingdom has a tendency to drop. So if Jesus and his kingdom are not our greatest treasure, what is and why? How do we know what our greatest treasure is? Man, what a good question. I wish we had a Bible verse that could highlight something. Oh, there is one. Matthew 6, 21, which will require some explanation, tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in essence... When we ask where our treasure is, it also could be said, what do you love? What do you love? Well, how do I determine what I love? What do you do? What occupies your brain space? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your energy? Where do you spend your time? The reality is, as we answer these questions, we begin to understand the things that we treasure. Now, you may be wondering, Kevin, are you saying that we can't love anything else other than King Jesus and his kingdom? No. It's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. The question, however, is what do we love supremely? All other loves in this world will find their proper place when Jesus is in his proper place in our lives. But if he's not in that proper place, everything else gets so confusing. Have you guys ever experienced this? When my love for Jesus and his kingdom is not supreme, guess what? I have a really hard time trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do today. Because all of a sudden I can be pulled in this direction or in that direction. I have a hard time making decisions with potentially what job should I take. And all of a sudden all that I go to is not what is God saying. All I'm thinking about, okay, well, which job will pay me better? Because whether or not I like it or not, one of the loves that can sneak up into our lives is money itself. All other loves in this world find their proper place when Jesus is in his proper place in our lives as our greatest treasure. Like I said before, I, I don't want us to be a people who live in la-la land or in make-believe space. 
I want us to genuinely ask the question, what is your treasure? What is your supreme treasure? What do you love? What and who do you sacrifice for? What do you make sure to have time to do? These things are your treasure. So what do we do if we realize that Jesus and his kingdom aren't always our primary treasure? What are we to do? We repent. We confess. We fall on our knees and we respond to the amazing grace of the one who has come, who has come to earth as the perfect God-man, who taught us, who demonstrated what the kingdom was like, who died and who rose again. And we declare over and over and over again that he is our God and that there is no other. We can't keep walking through a space where we pretend like Jesus is supreme if he's not. Next week, you're going to hear Steve talk about the dangers of being too familiar with Jesus. So much so that sometimes it's almost as if he loses his potency. And I fear far too many of us, far too many of us treat Jesus and his kingdom almost like a treasure in a china cabinet or on a bookshelf that we walk by here and there and we pull it out every now and again. We say, oh, this is, this is beautiful. This is neat. This is cool. Let me show it to my friends when they come over for a meal. Let me put it out. Let me make sure it looks pretty all the time. But it's not something we wear or adorn or something that invades us from the inside out like the leaven like we talked about last week that transforms into a giant tree where life flows out of. It's something that we reference every now and again on a bookshelf. Many of us today, we need a bit of a reality check. And we need God's grace and we need to choose. And I'm using language specifically here. We need to choose to fall in love with Jesus and his kingdom again. Remember, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Our hearts will deceive us. Our hearts have a tendency to want to put me on the throne and want to push Jesus off. And there are times when we might proclaim and this world tells us we can't help what our hearts fall in love with. But the Lord has given you and I an incredible gift in giving you a will in giving you fortitude not to earn your salvation but you have a choice in what you do. You get to choose who you surround yourself with. You get to choose who you spend time with. And I'll tell you what, if we choose to surround ourselves daily with spending time with Jesus in his word and in prayer, spending time in community with the church and our community groups, practicing living out the kingdom of God together, guess what? You are going to start loving the king and kingdom with a more genuine authenticity. Many who come to know Jesus and his kingdom later in life 
there's often radical transformation and sacrifice uh, that is, it's just evident. This was with my dad. My dad came to know Jesus when he was 18 years old. He was the oldest in his family, family of four boys. My dad came to know Jesus because some guy on his baseball team named Gary Barber was bold enough to share the gospel with him. And man, my dad was cut to the heart. And my dad was redeemed. He was broken. And he was rescued out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And his life has never been the same. And he was ostracized from his family because of it. But my dad had that to cling on to. This is of greatest value. There's no chance that I wouldn't turn my back on anything for the sake of grabbing hold of this kingdom. But you know who this is really hard for often? Second and third generation believers. People have grown up in the church. It's often very difficult for them to value the king and the kingdom as much as somebody who's radically plucked out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. This is why all throughout scripture there is this call, even in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, this call to parents to teach their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' 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 kids of the truth, the reality, and the value of the king and the kingdom. We have a responsibility. But here's the deal. We can't do it with our mouths alone. We must do it with our lives. They must walk in partnership together. If all you do is tell your kids about how valuable the kingdom is, and yet all they see you do is spend money on X, Y, and Z, guess what? They're going to think that the kingdom is not very valuable. They're going to think that the king isn't that good. For us and for the generations to come, we must fall back in love with the king and his kingdom. And we must teach it to our kids and to our kids, 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 kids. This is how the kingdom of God goes from a mustard seed into a giant tree in which life flourishes. But it'll take time. <coughs> Why is the kingdom and the king so valuable? Because in his kingdom and through Jesus the King, we find the greatest solution to our greatest needs. Where there is real forgiveness, where there is real purpose, where there's real belonging, and a promise of eternal life that this world could never take away. It is the best thing in the world. The question is, do we believe it? Do you believe it? Do you? Do you believe the king and the kingdom is the best thing in the world? Is it worth everything? Is it worth everything? If so, what does it look for us to shape our lives around that truth? My encouragement 
for you guys as we get ready to respond now in worship is that if you ask these, as you ask these questions and you realize perhaps that when it comes to the question of do I chiefly or supremely value the king and kingdom in this world, if you find that that answer might be no, or if you find that that answer in mouth, in word, is yes, but if you mark that with action, it's like yes, no, if you find yourself in that space, my invitation to you tonight, one, is that know that you have a loving Father. We have a loving Father who knows. He knows. It's not a question to Him of what you chiefly or supremely value. You can't fool Him. He knows. But you know one of the most amazing things to me about God is that here He's telling us about the kingdom and the great treasure that He is. But do you know that God values and treasures you and me? How do I know this? He sent Jesus to go to the cross so that we might be redeemed. He paid it all. He sacrificed the greatest sacrifice, demonstrating to you and to me, all of his children, that we are valuable, that he actually treasures us. Does that blow anybody else's mind that king of the universe says, I treasure you so much that I would die on the cross for you in order that you might be redeemed, be brought back into my family? And it's my desire that you would treasure my king and kingdom. I hope this is an invitation to you to further up and further in with our Lord. If you find yourself in a tension spot where you're like, man, I don't know that I supremely treasure the king and kingdom. My invitation to you tonight is to begin by confession and repentance. There's going to be some people on the sides that would love to pray with you. Just come up to them and say, man, if, if I'm to be honest, the reality is I do not treasure the king and kingdom above everything else, and I want that to become reality. And on top of that, for all of us, as we've heard throughout Matthew so far, there's this invitation into discipleship. And it's a process. You guys, we have to fight to retrain our brains about what is the most valuable thing in this world. Because our world will tell us that other things are way more valuable. And we can get awfully confused sometimes. But my hope for you this morning is, or this evening is that, man, that God would encourage you, that he would show you the value of the kingdom and that your heart would be stirred to grab hold of the kingdom that he's made possible through Jesus and that we would respond in lives day after day, in essence, pledging our allegiance to king and kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this evening. Lord, I pray now as we get ready to respond, Lord, that you and your loving kindness, for those of us that might need some time to repent and confess, Lord, that, you, that we would take that time, that, that we would sit, that we would have a conversation with you. Lord, for those of us who aren't sure if... We're honest, if we actually really do think that your kingdom is that valuable, Lord, I ask that you and your loving kindness, you would show 
how valuable your kingdom is. That people would see how valuable king and kingdom are. And Lord, I ask that you would continue to help me on a daily basis choose to supremely love the king and your kingdom above all things. I need your help to do that. Father, I confess I have desire day after day to try and sit on the throne. I have desire to pursue comfort over your kingdom. I have desire to pursue security. I have desire to seek approval. These are all loves and things that I have a tendency to treasure sometimes. And Lord, I ask that you would help there not be anything that I treasure more supremely than you. So, Father, would you continue to work through the power of your spirit as we respond now? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.